Hi, Monica. How are you? Um, the microphone, so you can unmute yourself, is on the bottom right hand. There's a little um, microphone button, so. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, can you say something again to test if um, the sound is good? Hello? Uh, it's a little bit um, quiet, but it could be me. So um, are you close to your microphone? Yes, I am. Okay. Okay, good. Maybe it's just my reception. We'll open the room in like around four minutes, uh, four to five minutes. So, um, yeah. and then I'll introduce you. And um, yeah, so let's uh, wait for people to arrive and uh, then we'll okay. start. Yeah. Thank you. Hello everyone, uh, thank you so much for coming everyone in the audience. Um, we'll start in a few minutes, um, so stay tuned. Thank you. Hi Serena, how are you doing? Hello. Hi Monica. Hi. Really looking forward to this topic today. Sounds so fascinating. Yeah, me too. Oh, it's really great work, Monica. Hi, Gilbert. How are you doing? Meet Monica. Hello, everybody. Hi, Monica. Hello. Hey, everyone. Okay, it's uh, 12 p.m. EST. Uh, we can slowly start. I'll um, introduce you and then um, I guess people will continue coming in. But um, yeah, I think we can start. So welcome everyone to the Science Society. Thank you for coming. We have another day and another really um, interesting um, and very impactful work that will be presented by our um, guest speaker and let me introduce you to her um, 
Monica Priya Darshini. She will um, be introducing, uh, talking about her work that was published in Nature Methods. And um, she is um, a biological and environmental science, um, scientist and engineering at, and in the engineering division at King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Tuwal Kingdom of Saudi, um, Saudi Arabia. And um, she um, did, um, she's in the um, she's um, there um, doing her research in um, in um, transgenerational um, gene silencing and epigenetics and um, and this work was very recently published and as I said it's a very impactful and very important uh, publication and um i'll let monica tell you all about it first and then i'll i'll continue how, why i think it's so important and um so yeah thank you so much monica for uh, being here and for taking the time to share your work with us and um yeah the stage is yours Thanks, uh, Katerina, and I'm thankful for making me a part of this Science Society. I didn't know about it before, but I think it's a great platform to share research and give a general overview of the work that we are all doing. Um, and I'll just briefly introduce myself, even though you already did. Uh, my name is Monica, uh, and I come from India. Uh, and uh, I hope everyone can hear me. If if you cannot, just let me know. Unmute your mic and let me know because I feel like sometimes it's showing that the connection is unstable. So at any point, just let me know. Anyway, um, so I come from India. I shortly was in Germany uh, for a short project where I got interested in epigenetics uh, at Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry uh, after my master's. And then I took up a PhD position at King Abdullah University for Science and Technology uh, in Saudi Arabia, um, following one of the professors who joined here, actually. So I didn't know about this place before. But turns out that uh, I came here to do some really interesting research. And I'm currently just in the process of moving on to my next career step. Uh, and currently still here as a, I mean, I've graduated from my PhD and just waiting for my visa process to be done. So anyway, uh, today I'm actually going to talk about my work, which was one of uh, my main projects during my PhD. And so this is my uh, paper, first author paper from the work that I did. Um, and just to uh, give a brief overview about uh, my research. So the, there's a model organism that I work with, uh, and it's called C. elegans. It's a roundworm, and it's one of the most famous model systems that people have used, uh, other than fruit flies and mice and rats. Um, it's one of the more fundamental model organisms in the sense that there are a lot of biological pathways uh, which are uh, conserved from humans and mammals to worms, and that's why it makes it very interesting for us to study a more simple organism, especially developmental pathways in a simple organism, and then be able to kind of make a correlation with higher organisms. And there are a lot of interesting signs that at this stage that we can make use of these simpler organisms to study, which we cannot do uh, in, in higher and more complex organisms. For example, uh, transgenerational inheritance, or for that matter, any inheritance studies, if you had to do a generational time point in rats or mice, it would not be possible by a single PhD student. It would be a very long PhD project. But uh, for C. elegans, this worm uh, is very interesting because it's a hermaphrodite, so all its progeny is clonal, so to speak. Uh, 
um, and also its life cycle is three days. So every three days you have a new generation uh, of worms that you can study. So this was one of the main advantage of doing this epigenetic transgenerational inheritance study in worms. Uh, and then this whole field of transgenerational inheritance was something that was discovered in C. elegans. So uh, apart from winning, you know, two or three Nobel Prize awards by this worm, it has many interesting features which now people are trying to uh, study in even higher organisms. So what's transgenerational inheritance? I would like the audience to even understand what that would mean is when, let's say, there's an, there's an environmental trigger of some sort and the parent is exposed to some kind of environmental cue and it has some response to it. Uh, but this response can get inherited, not just uh, in one generation, which is their progeny, but even in their grandchildren and then so on and so on, who were not all these progenies in the later generations that were not exposed to the, to the initial stimuli. This is what we call transgenerational inheritance. And this was specifically first observed in worms uh, when uh, through a method called RNA interference, uh, which was one of the Nobel Prize winning um, work uh, done in C. elegans and by two famous scientists, Professor uh, Andrew Fire and uh, Professor Mello. Um, so what happens in worms is they have a very strong, uh, let's say, um, defense mechanism which is based on small RNAs. And these small RNAs can recognize uh, any invading, uh, so to speak, uh, complementary RNAs and then once they degrade it, they make a memory of, of uh, these uh, invade invasive RNAs and if they encounter it, then they will always have a population of these small RNAs which gets carried on to the next generation and they can go on silencing it. When RNAi happened, then people started to understand what this whole small RNA dependent phenomena is and that it can go from one generation to the next to the next. So then one of the main questions that I asked during my work is, uh, well, there are more than one kind of small RNAs uh, in worms, and one of the more uh, uh, important ones that we were interested in are called pi RNAs, or PV-associated small RNAs. And why was this important? Because these uh, small RNAs are more enriched in the germ cells of the worms. So that means that if you have any uh, thing happening in, in the germline, that it would I mean, they kind. I mean, these pi RNAs are known to protect uh, the germ cells against uh, some detrimental effect of repeat-rich elements like transposons, retrotransposons that can affect the fitness of the next generation. So they do have a protective defense mechanism, but there are several other functions of pi RNAs in worms that we are not aware of. And we wanted to explore more what these pi RNAs could do um, and essentially use it to make a tool that can be used to manipulate things only in the germline. Uh, so uh, we wanted, and, and another thing that I would like to highlight is um, through RNAi in worms, uh, there's only a handful of few endogenous targets that people have shown can be silenced. And if you silence, for example, a gene which is required for uh, uh, embryo fertility in C. elegans, if you target um, this gene, it's you can silence them for a couple of generations but that's the only known uh, endogenous gene which can be silenced and that silencing is inherited. So another basic question that we had is, is this phenomenon specific to a few handful genes or is it a general phenomenon or 
or or what is it? Are there other endogenous targets that we can silence and then see inheritance? Because it would be a much uh, better platform to study transgenerational inheritance if we can look at uh, more uh, interesting genes that can be silenced, but also that give a robust phenotype upon silencing, and that phenotype can be you know, used for quantifying uh, the silencing process. And you can imagine the germ, if you are silencing any genes in the germline, that uh, the silencing can cause very severe or lethal effects because it's in the germline. So there are very few genes that you could actually target and see a real phenotype instead of, you know, something like death or embryonic arrest or things or sterility. Um, so there are two, uh, two of many uh, genes that we targeted, and these genes fall under a category called HIMS or high incidence of male. And C. elegans, like I said, uh, is generally a hermaphrodite, but uh, you can have, in rare circumstances, males. So there are two genes, HIM5 and HIM8, that we chose, and both these genes are involved in the chromosome uh, segregation uh, pathways. And if you knock down these, knock out these genes, then you start seeing an abundance of males on the plate along with hermaphrodites. So this is one of those phenotypes that you can actually are healthy and it is something that you can quantify. And so we thought that these would be great targets. And even though RNAi is a, a very well-established uh, method of silencing genes in the field, um, these two genes are not easily silenced by RNAi. And we don't fully know why. Uh, it's possible that RNAi doesn't work very well in the sperm, uh, but might be more uh, good in um, you know, the, the female germline. So we thought that pyRNAi could be a better way of silencing genes, especially because it's enriched both in the male and the female germline. And uh, so first we targeted one of the genes HIM5 using uh, uh, short pyRNA sequences. And so to tell you a little bit about uh, pyRNAs, the, in C. elegans, the pyRNAs are 21 nucleotide sequences and the, they have a bias for a five prime uracil. So on the five prime, they have a U, and then you have 20 base pairs of, um, of uh, any other sequence that it's targeting. Uh, so what we thought as a, as a tool development, what would be interesting, and what we thought could be similar to you know, CRISPR, how you have, you know, today we have CRISPR where you have these sgRNAs that uh, target Cas9 to a particular loci in the genome to do gene editing. We thought, oh, can we have a similar system in worms where we use it to manipulate its endogenous pathway to go and silence genes? So the pi RNA sequences, like I said, are 20 base pairs uh, in size. And what you what we did was. Uh, we selected like a cluster, a 1.5 uh, kilobases large endogenous uh, clusters, which have at least six different endogenous pi RNAs. And without manipulating the five prime U, the next 20 base pairs is what we replaced with uh, exonic sequence of the gene that we wanted to target. And with that, we created like a synthetic pi RNA cluster. And then we simply injected these clusters into the gonad of the worm and the, uh, with a few other co-injection markers to know if we get transgenic animals. And then uh, we looked at whether we, we observe any phenotypes or not. And so what we did see that for the gene HIM5, which uh, we tested by you know, doing RNAi or by doing uh, pi RNA interference. This is what we called it actually. Since we are using pi RNA to target genes, we call it pi RNAi. 
uh, and we compared the the male uh, frequency of males in the population from both these methods, and we saw that uh, we got a, at least 40% males uh, in by using pyRNAi mediated knockdown versus RNAi which we found was something really, really cool. And we're like, oh, wow, this is great. Uh, but but can this be inherited? And one more reason for doing this was also that in our field, uh, people have also depended a lot on transgenes. So one of the things on which gene silencing would be, uh, gene silencing studies have been done a lot in the germline is just by silencing a GSP, a germline GSP. And uh, that uh, is, as you can imagine, a GFP is is an is a transgene. It's a gene which is not in. It's not an endogenous gene for C. elegans. It's something that we have uh, improvised on to express in a different organism. So I think small RNA mediated defense mechanisms are very. They very easily recognize transgenes, and so when they silence a transgene, it can be silenced forever, right? Because they look at it as a foreign uh, DNA, as a foreign uh, element. And so we think if you want to really study uh, endogenous uh, pathways, and if you want to understand uh, epigenetic inheritance in true sense, we have to target something which is endogenous and not uh, something that doesn't belong to the organism. And that was one other motive to develop a tool that can robustly silence germline genes uh, and then study whether these silenced genes can uh, undergo inheritance. So the next step obviously was to test whether pi RNA mediated silencing of HIM5 um, shows uh, inherited silencing. And um, so we tested this um, by picking, uh, you know, in every generation, uh, we would pick animals uh, at an early stage which cannot mate with males. So one of the things that can happen if you have males and hermaphrodites on the plate, then they, uh, if they are at a mating stage, of their life cycle, they would start mating, and that could induce uh, the, a wrong count of males that you would see on the plate. So to avoid any of these problems, we would pick uh, animals uh, at an early stage, life stage, where the, it was impossible for it to mate with uh, other uh, animals, and we'd pick them and then look at the progeny of those animals and see uh, if we have any male population. And what we observed is for the gene HIM5, the inheritance lasted for three generations after the initial trigger was removed. We would completely remove the initial trigger, and the way it can be done is what we inject is a DNA, and it makes a high copy number array, which we call extra chromosomal array. So if you have a if you have a selection uh, for for the array, you can maintain the array, and if you remove the selection, you can get rid of the array. Uh, and so we would select non-array animals and propagate them for multiple generations, and see if the phenotype that we are looking for is still there. And we I would keep uh, doing the inheritance assay until I no longer see the phenotype. So uh, it was a very interesting approach uh, and also a very simple approach for, um, you know, I, for studying inheritance pathways. Uh, but then we started thinking of answering more fundamental questions about the pi RNA pathway itself. We can, we can use this tool not only to study germline pathways, but also to understand in depth how the pi RNA pathway works. So some of the things that we tested is looking at other genetic requirements for pi RNA pathway to function. And so one of the things which are uh, important for pi RNA pathways is these small RNA pathways depend on 
a um, particular group of proteins that are called argonaut proteins. Um, and their main function is to bind uh, a particular group of RNAs and then go and bind the target uh, mRNA sequence and then cut it. So this is how they work. And all argonauts uh, generally have this function, and these, this is conserved from worms to flies to mammals. Um, so what we, what we wanted to look at is now we've developed a tool called PyRNAI where we're expressing, we are reprogramming uh, and designing synthetic PyRNAs and injecting into the animals. Are they also working via the endogenous PyRNA pathway? So when we tested that, we, in, in worms, you, we have a lot of mutants where different uh, genes that are responsible for a particular small RNA pathway have been knocked out. So we can simply test those test by RNAi in those particular uh, mutant backgrounds. And so we did that. And for the pi RNA pathway, the most important argonaut pro one of the most important argonaut proteins is called PRG1. That is that is its fundamental binder, binding protein. So we observed that in the PRG1 mutant, if you inject pi RNAs against the gene HIN5, you do not observe any males. So this was also a sanity check for us that, okay, whatever we have designed works via the pi RNA pathway. And then we had also another bunch of genes that we then tested, uh, sorry, mutants that we tested that could also be uh, involved in initiating pi RNA mediated silencing of endogenous genes. Um, and then uh, we found that mostly all the, all the mutants could be involved in later stages of silencing where the silencing has been established, but they were not really essential for initiating pi RNA mediated silencing. So this this tool also helped us to discriminate between two phases of silencing. One is initiation of pyrene silencing, and the other is maintenance of pyrene mediated silencing. And then, uh, I mean, there are a lot of other uh, results which are interesting, but would broadly be um, something that uh, the field would be interested, but the two main things that I would like to highlight from this study, which I found was uh, quite interesting is, so I talked about it being epigenetic inheritance. So what I mean by that epigenetic, the word in itself means uh, in uh, something other than DNA. So we know that most of the Genetic inheritance means that it's DNA-based inheritance, but epigenetic means inheritance that require uh, non-DNA material. So that could be proteins, RNAs, and these and uh, histone modifications, which are um, which are the nucleosome-forming units around which the DNA uh, modifies. So basically, without making any changes to DNA itself. There are other factors that, that can be required for inheritance. That's what we call epigenetic inheritance. So some of the markers for epigenetic inheritance that has become widely popular are histone modifications, uh, DNA modifications, uh, and also small RNAs and long non-coding RNAs. And so one of the things that we usually look at, which is a marker for gene silencing, is a very prominent histone modification, which is called, uh, which is on histone H3 lysine uh, residue 9. It's called H3K9 trimethylation mark. So if any location is silenced, then there is a method called chromatin immunoprecipitation, where you look at the DNA in one of uh, DNA in its chromatin form, where it is bound with histones, and you look at the modification on these histones, and then uh, identify whether that region of of the gene is active or silenced. So we looked at uh, 
what we call a chip signal, which is chromatin immunoprecipitation signal. And you can use specific antibodies for specific histone modifications. So in our case, we looked at H3K9 trimethylation uh, modifications, and we found that if you the we found that the uh, you can you get very specific enrichment of H3K9 trimethylation at the targets of your interest when you when you silence it using PI RNAi. Uh, and this was also another evidence for us to show that the inheritance, uh, sorry, the silencing is uh, epigenetic. And so probably the inheritance that follows is epigenetic as well. Um, but we, one more thing that we observed is that the silencing of this gene can actually spread into neighboring genes. Uh, this is something that we probably cannot control because we may have uh, we may have a target uh, for a particular gene, but sometimes in C. elegans there are some genes that are clustered. They are within something which is called an operon. So there are multiple genes within within a very big uh, sequence, and so it is possible that when you're targeting a single gene, you're basically targeting something adjacent to it also, and it spreads. But we didn't see any phenotype coming from the adjacent genes, but we did see reduction in, in the transcript levels of the genes in the operons. Um, and uh, that's, that's also uh, kind of an interesting thing, but it's not an unusual phenomenon with silencing. Then uh, one last thing that I would really want to highlight about my work, which was one of the most interesting things for me, um, and as a concept, we think of things being, we thought of things being as transgenerationally silenced, but uh, what we also wanted to understand is what are the requirements for transgenerational inheritance of silencing? and can the transgenerational inheritance be shortened or reversed? Can the transgenerational inheritance become permanent? What can, uh, what ha under what conditions can we achieve these kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, phenomenon? So what we what we wanted to do is look at certain genes that are responsible for transgenerational inheritance. And one of them is called HERD1. Um, and HERD1 was basically identified in a screen for studying transgenerational inheritance through uh, RNA interference. And what we did was similar to when we were doing the genetic mutants, we injected pyRNAs against uh, the gene HIM5 and in the HERD1 mutant. And then we looked at the inheritance pattern and we see that the inheritance doesn't really last beyond one or two generations, which which basically told us that this gene is required for inheritance. In the absence of this gene, uh, pi RNA mediated inheritance cannot happen. But when, but what was also interesting is we wanted to know: okay, when can we make? Is it this? Can the inheritance become permanent? We know that we can prevent inheritance. Um, in, in certain cases, but can we elongate the inheritance? Can it go on for uh, multiple generations? So for that, we kind of made use of uh, another inducible mutant of PRG1. PRG1, as I said, is responsible for uh, pyRNA pathway. But what happens in the absence of PRG1, the pyRNA, pyRNA pathway doesn't function. But we wanted to have a mutant where we can induce uh, degradation of PRG1 and then study the effect. There have been previous studies which link that PRG1 can cause permanent silencing. There's previous uh, literature on that, but um, it's unclear whether it's PRG1 or uh, the maintenance of silencing which actually leads to permanent silencing. 
and it has been shown for transgenes such as GSP. So we were interested to know whether endogenous genes can actually undergo permanent silencing because it would be counterintuitive for organisms to silence their own genes permanently. So, so is that even possible? So what we did was there was a strain uh, which we received from a uh, lab of Anispire. It's a very interesting strain where the PRG1 protein uh, gene has been tagged uh, with a degron. A degron is another protein which basically, if it is bound to uh, a protein of interest, it degrades that protein in the presence of a chemical or a drug um, which is called auxin. So if you add auxin to the nutrient media, then it will be a signal for the worms to make PRG1 with degron, and the degron will actually degrade PRG1. So to do this experiment, we initially injected the pi RNA, synthetic pi RNAs, into this uh, PRG1 degron strain without adding any drug so that we start seeing uh, the phenotype uh, for HIM5, which was male. After that, we degraded uh, PRG1 by putting auxin into the nutrient media because then it would start degrading the PRG1 uh, in the worms, and then we looked at the inheritance pattern. And what we observed was very, very interesting that uh, in the absence, once you established pyRNA-mediated silencing and you got rid of the uh, pyRNA uh, stimulus, and then you also degraded PRG1 and pyRNA pathway, uh, you start, you, we observe permanent silencing of M5. And as soon as we stopped propagating the animals on the drug, auxin, this whole permanent silencing phenomena got reversed. And then the inheritance became shorter and uh, it came back, you know, uh, it became uh, non-permanent, so to speak. So the more interesting thing that came out of this uh, last study was that the protein itself, PRG1, which is responsible for the pyRNA pathway, was, is required to establish or initiate the pyRNA-mediated silencing, but is also required to prevent permanent silencing. And it's very interesting that the same protein is required for both these processes um, instead of uh, just being responsible for one. And so this has opened a whole new, uh, you know, plethora of questions that we would next want to answer um, in the field, especially in terms of understanding fundamentally how the inheritance uh, works. So um, this is uh, in a nutshell of uh, uh, what this paper is about and some of its uh, key uh, results. I didn't go through all of them but I only explained the ones that I thought were the most important. And I am happy to take any questions now. Thank you so much, Monica, for your really great um, explanation. Uh, wow. I'm sorry, my family is home, so <laughs> there's some background noise. <laughs> so, um, the, um, yeah, I think your work is so important and I wanted to let everyone know why, like I worked on your memory for a while during my PhD and after. And um, I, I always was so interested on uh, inheritance of, you know, epigenetic mechanisms and so on. Um, th in the interest of knowing, of learning how long trauma can persist or how it gets inherited. So I think your work will be so important to um, tackle those questions and um, um, also um, editing um, in the germline um, the way you do it, I think will open up a lot of stuff what I'm currently working on and generating um, out of stem cells, allogeneic um, transplants that um, can be uh, 
you that won't have any rejection in other humans. Um, I can't talk much about that because that's for a company why I think it's important, but because it would just tell people what I'm doing. But yeah, so thank you so much. So I just wanted for the audience to give, you know, the reason why I think this is really important work. And uh, I was waiting so long for somebody to publish this basically. So thank you, Monica. And um, yeah, please, if you have any questions in the audience, raise your hands and flash your mics up here on the stage. And um, yeah, go ahead and, and ask your questions or comments. Yes, Monica, fascinating. Um... Fascinating stuff. I'm a little uh, unclear on trying to to piece together the details uh, mechanistically. Um, could you summarize again what the mechanism or, of, of you know what you know of the pi RNA suppression um, is and how it gets transferred? And and I'm also curious in terms of the inheritance with multiple generations. Uh, you touched on it in in some ways, but um, how in some cases it you know it fades after a few generations, but uh, in what's actually happening there, is it yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I didn't go into the detail of the pioneer pathway, but uh, I I can just explain a little bit. So in C. elegans, um, we like I said, it has many different small RNA pathways, and uh, they are really experts at recognizing foreign DNA or foreign material. So for example, in the case of RNAi, if you introduce double-stranded RNA complementary to the gene of your interest, then the RNAi pathway gets activated and there are a, a number of argonaut proteins which are gonna form a complex to then uh, degrade not only the uh, double-stranded RNA, but it makes more of those double-stranded RNAs. It amplifies that signal, and those double-stranded RNAs uh, become single-stranded. They find its complementary sequence in the genome, and then make more and more of uh, uh, the you know complementary short uh, RNAs. And these RNAs will then recognize the transcripts. So every time the gene gets transcribed, you have the mRNA sequence. The complementary uh, uh, sh short interfering RNAs will basically bind to the mRNA of interest and cut it. And it will keep cutting it. And it's, this is basically called uh, post-transcriptional uh, degradation or silencing. And what happens, and then there's what is what we call as the transcriptional silencing, is that this entire uh, uh, small RNA machinery uh, with some other uh, nuclear argonauts that can go from the cytoplasm into the nucleus, they go and find uh, the genomic location of your gene of interest and bring the silencing machinery over there and then, you know, pause the RNA polymerase from making more transcripts. It's more like a negative feedback. And you have other silencing modifications that are brought in, like the histone uh, 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 trimethylation marks, which are put on that gene of interest. And basically, that locus becomes silent. So, so, so like the, the, the RNA in action, it's, it's actually replicating and, and, uh, and acting on the transcripts of the complementary sequence? Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Basically. And so the pioneers are no different. They are very similar instead that they don't require double-stranded RNAs as a signal. Inherently, in C. elegans, for example, there are more than 16,000 different pioneers, but they rarely map to anything within the genome. So we know a little bit to some of the transposons, uh, which are there in C. elegans, and they're not very much. But there are other sequences also, which probably were like over evolutionary time for other transposons and other things that it was targeting. So pyRNAs are transcribed as single short uh, 21 base pair RNAs, which find its complement in the genome. And, and then the entire machinery is 
somewhat the same in identifying the mRNA and cutting it and then putting the silencing marks at the uh, genomic level. So yes. So, so over the generation, oh, I'm sorry. So over the yeah, generations, uh, what what actually happens for it to fade away? Is it the, its own replication cycle gets silenced or? Yes, so this is one of the hypotheses. We still don't know. We don't fully understand the, the, the molecular process of inheritance. And one of the theories that we have is these small RNA populations are uh, basically uh, moving from, in, they are, in the germ cells uh, of, uh, and they're passed on to the next generation. And over time, uh, this, this acts as uh, like a memory from the pre previous generation that, hey, you need to silence this particular gene because the complementary RNAs are present. But over time, I think that the organism also re understands or remembers that this is my own gene. So there, there could be a, a mechanism to prevent the silencing process also. So over time, it, the, the small complementary RNA signal dilutes um, and uh, basically uh, it fades out. And this is what I would think is the case for endogenous genes. But if you had something which is not belonging to the, the worm's genome, then that process might be different, I would think. Fascinating. Um, can, uh, do we want to ask other questions from the audience or take questions? Go ahead. I was, uh, it's very curious to me how the the alterations work themselves out as the generations go go further. Um, that was just really interesting to me. I didn't necessarily expect that to happen. Yeah, yeah and uh, like I said, like epigenetics is like a combination of uh, small RNAs, histone modifications, uh, and these uh, these are things that is currently very hot in the field. Especially one of the things I spoke about was histone modifications. And uh, one of the famous modifications for gene silencing is uh, H3K9 trimethylation mark. Um, and how these uh, non-DNA modifications actually dictate whether the gene is going to be expressed or silenced is very interesting. And not just that, these modifications then get passed on to the next generation uh, to, to you know, preserve the memory from the prior generation. One thing that I would like to add, which is not my work, but in the field, people are also looking at the role of high RNA pathways in inheritance of more of an environmental effect, like starvation, or if, uh, if the worm is invaded by a pathogen, how it remembers the memory and passes to the next generation also involves the pi RNA pathway. Uh, and, and this is just to highlight that these small RNAs have multiple roles in defense, but uh, defense mechanism, but also, you know, to, to basically have a memory for the fitness of the organism itself. It's curious how, oh, go ahead, Kat. Kat. No, no, go ahead. That's fine. It's so curious how uh, a histone modification could be passed on. Is there some factor that uh, is selectively um, recognizing a sequence and then modifying on the histone uh, repeatedly, or is it being trans? You know, is that factor being transcribed? Or I mean, how? What's going on there? <laughs> so. Um... One thing that we know for now, uh, and it's a little bit different from uh, higher organisms and mammals. In mammals, uh, we rarely see transgenerational effects. It's now becoming more clear, but uh, for example, one of the modifications is the DNA methylation. But what happens in mammals is usually when 
when the embryo in the next generation when meiosis happens and a new embryo forms all the previous uh, modifications are erased it's like a clean slate for the new progeny and then things are written back on it from the beginning in worms it's not the case uh, and we think that there are like I said, these small RNAs, if they get carried on from, let's say, the parent to the next generation of progeny, then those small RNAs would basically initiate the cascade of silencing, which would start by, let's say, the gene makes transcripts, forms mRNA, these small RNAs are going to go and target these mRNA transcripts. And then you will see degradation in the cytoplasm, but also then in the nucleus, the transcriptional silencing will initiate and they'll put the silencing marks. So I think as long as you'll have these small RNAs, they are basically carrying the memory to, to initiate the silencing mechanism in every generation. This is one of the things I think uh, is happening. I see. So it's in essence, it's it's possessed and that that carries on um, in yeah. the germline. Yeah. Fascinating. And think, yeah, Go ahead. And it has to be in the germline. Sorry. Uh, I I was just emphasizing, like, if you have changes in the somatic cells, that's unlikely to be carried on in the next generation, right? Because it's just going to stay in the cells that have already differentiated and are not going to be passed on. But if something, if the changes happen in the germline, then it's likely that it's going to inherit in the next generation because it's the germ cells from the parent that goes into the offspring. Right. So, so yeah, and just to remind everyone, when a pregnant woman, um, so the first epigenetic, like, big studies were uh, in the Netherlands uh, because there was this yeah. huge flood in the 50s and um the afterwards um in in the next generation uh, they had a high um um high high presentation in the population of schizophrenia so they looked at uh so so pregnant women during that time that went through this immense stress and also scarcity um, um because they were cut off of supplies for a long time um they saw like in high increased rate in schizophrenia then and just to um explain in a pregnant woman pretty relatively early on there are three generations of germ germline <laughs> you have you have the mother you have the the child of course and then you have already the eggs built in the in the baby basically or in the in the embryo so you have basically if um, a big stress factor happens in a pregnant woman you're affecting basically three generations um and which is which is very like important to know combined with just to give you like a real world um impact there came a study out last year uh, that in the u.s um, it is uh, two times, almost three times higher likely for a pregnant woman to um, to experience um, trauma due or even homicide um, than a woman that is not pregnant. Um, like a pregnant woman gets beaten more often and killed more often, almost to a factor of three in the U.S. Like this is that was looked at the US. So this is very shocking data. But uh, because of all of these just horrible facts that just exist in the world, it's really important to figure out those mechanisms, how trauma gets um, transmitted to the next generation. And then we will have at some point the tools maybe to silence them. I think we can save like the next generations of, um, yeah, of impact that trauma, for example, could have made. So, uh, but there's a lot of more fields where Monica's work will be very important. So again, just stating like 
how much real world uh, impact um, Monica's work could yeah. have in the future. Actually, just to add on to what you said, Katerina, there was a TED talk a few years ago about behavioral studies and how that also affects the epigenetic environment. And I don't know if uh, I would really encourage everyone to go and see because that work was one of the few works that linked what we see behaviorally to what is actually happening in your DNA. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. I think it was studies in rats or mice. Um, uh, and what they show is uh, the the way the mom uh, rat treated its babies could be inherited in the next generation. And it was really environment dependent and not genetics because uh, they basically were able to discriminate that if the baby baby rats were were given to a, a mother which was very caring versus a mother which was non-caring, it, it puts different epigenetic marks in their DNA. And uh, I thought that was a very uh, interesting study and also then it uh, kind of uh, shows the strong importance of epigenetic marks that even even if it's not let's say uh, inherited, but from your environment, there are epigenetic changes that occur in your genome, and depending on what the signal may be, it may or may not get inherited. Nowadays, there are studies on obesity and metabolism, and there's definitely uh, some things that people are looking at: parental obesity being inherited in the progeny, and we know that. This is also one of the very uh, important studies nowadays with nutrition and uh, you know high-fat diets. So people want to understand how much are the future generations succumbing to obesity if their parents were exposed to uh, you know a fat-rich diet and things like that. And I feel that the worm is only scratching the surface. And the reason we can do these studies in these simple organisms are basically because one, these phenomena were identified here, but also, like I said, they have very short generation times. I can only imagine doing the study in three generations of humans would be a much longer time-taking process um, and would probably not even be ethical at this point to do. Uh, but uh, it's it's a way for us to find at least uh, a scientific way of looking at transgenerational um, inheritance and and also I think Pyre and AI as a process because I feel it's inducible. Hello guys, hello everyone. Uh, science. Is... Sorry, I think I'm sorry. No, it was fine. <laughs> it's um, some people. Um, I just want to touch upon the fact that PyRNA is also, um, let's say, inducible and something that could be only persistent uh, uh, as long as you have the array, you can have it. Uh, and then if you remove the PyRNA array, the may or may not see the effect of the silencing process. So anything which is inducible is in a way very useful because you're not making any modifications to the gene itself, you know, like you're not damaging the DNA, but you have an external way of controlling uh, the gene expression, which I find is very, very uh, useful and uh, important to have. But Again, I would also argue that the system is specific to C. elegans right now and may not work in higher organisms, but it does pave the path to find similar ways of manipulating genes in higher organisms. Yes, I agree. Uh, I agree with you that ideally we have these, uh, we use your type of method and not, you know, changing really the code of DNA um, forever. So if it's um, 
something we can modulate ideally in, in real time because changing we never know right if it will lead maybe to cancer or to any other complication i know we have a guest speaker here um, that looked for um, safe harbor gene um, gene loci and to for modulating dna but it's still uh, i think uh, too high of a risk um, to and also to get it approved so ideally we we use your method in in humans one day and um yeah <laughs> you know like um we yeah. that's I why think, uh, recently, yeah. yeah i think recently rnai was uh, was approved for drug discovery or something um and it it's almost 20 years uh, definitely more than 10 years since its discovery and uh, yeah so it's 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 going to be a while before <laughs> these things would happen yeah i know it's always in times like that but you know <laughs> maybe we don't live anymore to see it but maybe we do um but yeah, yeah all we can do is uh, try our best um yeah. but um yeah i I also, yeah, I also used to work in, in studies where uh, uh, stress during development or um, by mom, mice, what uh, they can induce or separation. We were kind of motivated on the, the current state here politically that um, the illegal immigrant kids were separated from their parents. So we did the study of maternal separation and um, right. yeah, epigenetic factors are quite important and RNA uh, level modulation. They, we saw a long-term impact on coordination uh, and was an interesting, um, was interesting that it affected mostly like glia type of L cells. Like they're, they're becoming more and more important, I think, um, in the field also. So. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, hopefully <laughs> we'll continue to have a lot of more great uh, researchers like you and you keeping uh, researchers like you having money to continue this important work. And um, yeah, come back anytime with, with updates. Sure, um, actually, uh... So I got a position as a postdoc at Stanford, so I'm moving to US uh, hopefully soon, and uh, it would be great to you know participate and share more about my science. I'm slightly changing my field of interest from my PhD work. Now I'm I'm gonna look at more fundamental questions and uh, study more about how the genome organization works. And one of my most uh, interesting topics I like is heterochromatin um, and what's its role in genome organization. So I hope, and that also has a lot of uh, interest, especially with cancer and other diseases. Uh, so I am I'm very excited about the next phase of the science that I'm going to take. <laughs> Wow, congratulations, that's so great. Yeah, I, yeah, I had the, um, but it never got funded. Like, when, uh, back in time, I wrote a um, hypothesis paper and I wanted to look at um, eye motif and um, G4 formations and look at if it's involved in synaptic plasticity, but apply for this, um, uh, exploratory um, uh, grant, but it was still too exploratory for them. Oh. So. <laughs> and how it could be involved in addiction, because I was also working a lot in compulsion and addiction related. But anyways, yeah, I, I wish you the best for that your visa, you know, I had to come with the visa too with my whole family. so. I hope everything goes smoothly. I'm sure it will. And um, yeah, you are always welcome to come back and give us updates. And um, yeah, and just come also 
maybe you're interested in listening to some of our guest speakers and how, you know discuss and comment on work they're doing so um but serena you you wanted to say something oh yeah just thanks again i was gonna sort of take it off into some general area but but um no it'll be great to see your uh and i'm always fascinated about structural organization of uh, of the chromosomes so that's a fascinating area um and i wish you the best of luck and i hope to see you back thanks love Okay, so um, yeah, we um, thank you so much, everyone out there in the audience, um, and everyone that asked questions. Um, and uh, thank you for joining our room today. And please follow the Science Society. Uh, we have actually tonight. Uh, we have more guest speakers coming um, a few times, like a bunch of times a week, and. Um, Tonight we have another interesting topic. He's a researcher at NIH and he will talk about his latest uh, publication on how mitochondria act as microlenses in cone cells. Uh, I think it's a really interesting topic and we have more rooms like this. And yeah, again, thank you Monica so much for um, coming here and teaching us about your work. It's um, it's great and good luck for everything you do and and hear you back soon <laughs> hopefully thank you yeah thanks a lot again uh, it was really great to talk on such a platform uh, um i think it's very important that we learn to communicate our work in different ways and i can tell you that it was a challenge for me to <laughs> talk without having a presentation, but also to talk about it in a more general context. And hopefully next time I can do a much better job. Um, uh, but thanks a lot for this opportunity. It was really great. Uh, and I'll also be looking forward to participate uh, as an audience for other talks. Yeah, great. Uh, you did a great job. <laughs> it was great. And. Um... Yeah, we always keep the recordings here on Clubhouse, but I also put them on the website and on YouTube and on Spotify. So I will send you the links and you can share with people that you would like yeah. um, to have it. And uh, yeah, and it should also increase the altmetric impact. That's why I'm doing put this to put it on different platforms because the altmetric aligned is um, made out of different categories. So having, for example, a YouTube video and a podcast um, brings up the score, then having like a hundred tweets always of the same. So I'll also do that and send you the link and uh, good luck for everything. And thank you. Thank and you so uh, yeah, thank you everyone in the audience and hear you back later tonight. And um, bye everyone. I'll close the room in Three, two, one, bye. Take care. Bye. bye.